first being a review week, we decided that um, I would preach on a topic instead of going through the flow of Scripture of what we have been going. And just so you know, um, I said this the week I preached that we believe in exp- expositional preaching and going through verse by verse or passage by ba- passage, but we do believe it's appropriate to address topics every now and then. And so um, I had the, the privilege and the challenge of uh, preaching on the Trinity, and um, I really enjoyed it, but being a Celebration Sunday, the Sunday was uh, uh, a little bit shorter and um, I didn't get to go through all my points. So Brent asked me, Pastor Brent asked me the next week if I would come and finish the sermon. Um, the problem happened that I got sick that week. And so I asked Pastor Brent if I could do it some other time. So uh, with that all said, um, we're going to finish that sermon today. And for uh, those that weren't there uh, two weeks ago, it's probably going to sound like we're just jumping right into a, um, a sermon this morning because we are. Um, and so... I'll try to give some review, and for you guys that were there uh, that Sunday morning, um, it will be a review, and it will be similar. But with that all said, uh, I'm speaking on the Trinity, and so I definitely need some prayer. So let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you. uh, Thank you for who you are, Lord. God, I thank you for uh, the privilege of being beings that you revealed yourself to. God, that is a huge privilege and honor. And Lord, I pray as we uh, talk about your nature this morning, that you guard my lips, Lord. Speaking on a topic that's so mysterious and so glorious and so important. So God, I just pray that you're with us this morning. Be with me as I speak. Again, Lord, guard my lips from anything that's not has not been revealed of you in the scriptures And Lord, I pray that our hearts are open to what your nature means to us, what what we can apply to our lives from who you are, God. So I pray that you're with us this morning. Just thank you for this time. Amen. So two weeks ago, I had a a goal of answering three questions. It was kind of supposed to be a three-point sermon, but again, we ran out of time. But the questions were, uh, does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? Does the doctrine of the Trinity Trinity make logical sense? And the third question was, how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? The first question we went over, and I'm not going to spend that much time, but again, just to review, um, which is the most important question. This one and the third are probably the two most important questions. Uh, Does the the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? I mean, if the the Bible is our ultimate authority, we need to go to the Bible to see what it says about the nature of God. And we found that, yes, the Bible does as a whole. And and we talked about you're not going to find the word Trinity in Scripture. You're not going to find even a passage that explains the Trinity. But the Bible as a whole does clearly claim three things about God. First, God is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second, each person is fully God. And third, there is one God. Another way of saying this is God is one in essence, yet three in persons. Or there is one true God of the Bible that has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
God is unified in essence, but diverse in persons. And if you are interested in hearing the biblical support for that doctrine, I encourage you, the sermon is online, and you can order a sermon in the, the back if you want to want to um, listen to the uh, support for that, that doctrine. Um, but we saw that it, the Bible does clearly claim those three things. Second, we went over the question, does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? And we talked about how, first, we, we need to start with... with does the doctrine of the Trinity uh, is the doctrine of the Trinity illogical? And we discovered that the doctrine of the Trinity is is not contradiction. If if the doctrine said one essence and three essences, it would be a contradiction. Or if it said one person and three persons, it would be a contradiction. But the doctrine of the Trinity says one essence and three persons, which is not a contradiction. It's a mystery. Side note, and we talked about this briefly, that there's mysteries all over the physical universe. Black holes, we don't know how they exist or, or, or how they work. Quantum physics, if you, if you know a scientist, ask him that, that we don't know how quantum physics works. One time we had no idea how gravity worked. But nobody said gravity is not real. Not understanding does not equal not real or not possible. And so the, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a contradiction. It is a mystery. But we took it a step deeper. And again, I'm just going to briefly go over this because it sets up how the, the doctrine of the Trinity applies to our life. Um, if, if you want a further understanding of, of this, uh, please, I encourage you to, to get that sermon. But... But I, want, I took a look at it two Sundays ago from a presuppositional apologetics approach. Apologetics meaning the defense of the faith, the reasonable answer um, to, is the Trinity reasonable? And I claim that the Bible is trustworthy because it says it is. And I accept this by faith. The Bible is trustworthy because it says it is, and it allows us to make sense of the world around us. It allows us to make sense of reality. It's a reasonable faith. What do we see in reality? Unity or diversity? Well, we see a universe. Uni, or una, coming from the word unity, and verse coming from the word diversity. We see a world full of unified diversities. It talked about how if you saw a cloud in the sky, one cloud, is it one cloud or many clouds? From the ground, looking up at the cloud, it looks like one cloud. But if you were flying through that one cloud, it would look more like billions of water drops. So is it one cloud or billions of water drops? It's both. It's unified, one cloud, diversity, millions of of water drops. Or you can talk about a a human, a human body. If I lose an arm or a leg, am I less human? No. I'm still fully human. Because I am one human with many parts. I'm unity and diversity. Philosophers have been arguing for thousands of years whether reality is one or many. It's called the one or many problem. Philosophers have never been able to figure it out, but it's clear 
that, that it's both. Reality is unity and diversity. And I believe that the university of creation reflects the creator who is both unity, one in essence, and diversity, three in persons. And therefore, two Sundays ago, we came to the conclusion that the concept of a triune God not only passes criticism, but also should be expected. If the creation is full of unified diversity, then it's logical to assume that the creator himself is a more complex unified diversity. It's like saying the creation is big or glorious or wonderful, and we expect the creator to be bigger and more glorious and more wonderful. Although the cloud analogy fails to fully illustrate the complexity of a triune God, one should expect that the creation or the creation to reflect the creator on a limited level. Thus, it makes sense for God to be a more complex unified diversity as the creator of a world full of unified diversities. Again, a very quick um, argument there. If you want the fuller explanation or fuller argument to that, I would encourage you to get that CD. But, but the Bible does claim, demand and support that the doctrine of the, or the, doctrine of the Trinity, this is clearly, the, the Bible says that God is one in essence and three in person. And the next question, does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? Well, two things. One, the Trinity is not illogical. It's not a contradiction. And second, if God made a world to reflect his nature, and the world is full of unified diversities, and and here we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to expand on this, we see unified diversities more than anywhere else in relationships, in relationships. If we see the world is full of unified diversities, then we should, ex- or we should not be surprised that God himself is a, a unified diversity. From a logical standpoint, we should expect it. So today I want to I really spend time on that third point. How does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? How does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? What is the application for us personally uh, from the doctrine of the Trinity? Or or what can we learn from the doctrine of the Trinity? And I have five application points. And there is more. I've been spending all week trying to figure out which are the most important, which ones I should go over. Um, There is so much to this doctrine. Um, But I have five that that... just personally, I think, are the most important aspects. Most important things we should be modeling and see and apply to our lives. So the first, the first point of application. God intends his very nature to be expressed or imaged in our human relationships. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look, Psalms 19 says the heavens um, declare the glory of God. The creation, the stars, the, the, the mountains declare the glory of God, and it does a really good job. It declares who God is, but only man is made in God's image. Listen to Genesis 1.26. Again, let us, plural, make man in our plural, image, and after our plural 
likeness. God is a God of relationship. One of the ways we image God is in our relationships. We talked about this two weeks ago, but marriage and family, right? Marriage models God. Unity, one flesh. Diversity in roles, relationship, authority, and gender. Family, unity, one family. But diversity in husband and wife and children. And it's interesting to think that the husband has authority over the wife, who both have authority over the child. Similarly to God, the Father, having authority over the Son, who both have authority over the Holy Spirit. Yet, all being 100% equal in value or essence. The church body should model God. Unified in one body, unified in, in the same mind, in the same spirit, unified in the same purpose, in the same goal. In the same love, yet diverse in roles, giftings, and relationships. One unity, body, diversity, parts. God is a God of relationships, and we're called to be a people that models that. And I want to spend some time on this. So if you could, could you turn to Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 36. I want to show that, that God has called us to have a priority on our relationships. Matthew 22, verse 36. It's probably a familiar passage to most of us. It says, starting in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The Pharisee asks this question, trying to trap Jesus knowing that there's all types of arguments on which is the greatest commandment. And if he says this, then, then he's neglecting this. And if he says this, then he's neglecting this. And the whole goal was not to, to hear the answer from Jesus, but, but to trap Jesus and make him look bad. So Matthew 22, verse 37 says, And he, this is Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, all of our devotion, everything we do, should be motivated out of love for God. And Paul echoes this and takes it to the extreme in 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do is called to be motivated to glorifying God for love of God's glory, for worship of God. And one of the ways we glorify God and worship God is obeying Him. Meaning, this one commandment, love God, should cover everything. This is why it was such a good answer. It was a perfect answer. It covers everything. And here is what I've always wondered as I've read this passage. Why add verse 39, which says, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. If the first answer, love God with all your heart, covers everything, 
even loving others, because that's a command of God, we should obey that. Why specifically add the second greatest commandment? I mean, the Pharisees weren't even asking for a second greatest commandment. They just asked for the greatest commandment, and it was a perfect answer. Here's what I think. Because you do not love God if you do not love others. Listen to 1 John 4, 19-21. It says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, you want to know how well you're doing loving God? Look at how well you are loving people that are made in his image. If man is in the image of God, especially our Christian brothers, who are born again into the likeness of Christ, who even have God the Spirit living within them, how can you say, I love God and hate a Christian brother? And maybe we're sitting here this morning and feel like, I don't hate anyone. The Bible takes it up a step. Do you ever talk badly about a brother or sister? Behind their back or maybe even to their face? Because here's the deal. The heart is connected intimately to the mouth. And whatever comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And James says in James 3.8, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. How can we say we love God, but then curse God's image? Again, man's made in the image of God, especially our Christian brothers. How can you bless God and curse Christians? It would be like saying to me, Nathan, I've said this before, Nathan, I really love you, you're a great guy, but I can't stand Sarah. What do you think I would respond to? You think I would take that as a compliment? No. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ loved Christians so much that he died for them. How then can you say you love Christ, then talk badly about those he loves? Here's the point. It's easy, and I'm included in this. It's easy to trick yourself thinking that you love God. But it's much harder to prove that you love God by loving people. That's why Jesus added the second greatest commandment. It's what shows love for God. I mean, think about this. The Pharisees, if anyone thought they loved God, and they are the ones that killed him, had him put to death on the cross. They might have been able to fool themselves that they loved God, but they had an obvious disregard for people who are made in God's image. It was obvious that relationships with people, God's image, were not a priority for them. God is a God of relationships. Therefore, we need to make relationships a priority. Especially 
our marriage relationships, our family relationships, and our church body relationships. Let me just ask this question, and I'm, I'm asking myself this as I ask you. According to your love for others, how are you doing loving God? So the first point, the first thing we see is God is a God of relationship, and we need to make relationships a priority. The second point of application is being made in the triune God's image tells us that we are made for community. You might be saying, well, isn't that the same as the first point? No. God is a trinity, not a duality. In other words, we are made for relationships, yes, but we're also made for community. One author put it this way, God intends that there be a community of person. And I just want to stop right there and think about this. Think how significant this is. When a person is saved in the Old and New Testament, as soon as they are saved, as soon as you were saved, you were placed into a community. The Old Testament, Israel. The New Testament, the church. The Old Testament had, had outward signs of salvation. Not, not that they saved you, not that they added anything of grace or anything like that, but just showed what has happened spiritually to you. And the two things that, that, um, that were outward signs of salvation were circumcision and the sacrificial system. Both of these are personal and intimate practices done partly to identify people with the community, Israel. In the New Testament, we have baptism and communion. Again, both of these are personal and intimate practices done, again, partly to identify people with a community, the church. Salvation is radically individual. It's your relationship with God. Yet, it's completely communal. You're entering into a community. And listen to what this author says. God intends that there be a community of person in which there is an interconnection and interdependence so that what one does affects another, what one needs should be supplied by another, and what one seeks to accomplish may be supported by another. We live in a pluralistic society. What does that mean? It means that we emphasize diversity. And you've probably heard that a hundred times. We emphasize diversity and we downplay unity. And ironically, the few places that we emphasize unity are the places that we're supposed to be diverse, like gender. But we emphasize in our community diversity... And this has had a profound effect on the church. People think that we don't need to be interconnected and interdependent as Christians with each other. Or you don't need the church to be a Christian. And I'm sure you've heard someone say that before in your life. Or maybe you've even said that or thought that. But this is not true. As soon as you are saved, you are a part of the church. It goes hand in hand. The universal church, you may be saved, you may, and I emphasize the word may, be saved, and not part of a local church, a local community. But you're fighting against God's design, and you're not imaging him as you're called to do. The Trinity is both interconnected and interdependent with each other. And therefore, we're called to be interconnected and interdependent as a church body within a community. 
This author keeps going. Listen to this. We have seen over and again um, that what one member of the Trinity does affects another. The interconnectedness and the interdependence among the members of the Trinity is such that one is hard-pressed to think of any work of God which does not involve various members of the Trinity working together. For example, God the Father designs what the purpose of the created order will be. In this, he designs that his Son be the one who comes and redeems sinners. The Father designs it, but his fulfillment of that design depends upon the Son obeying the Father. And yet the Son obeying the Father depends upon the Spirit empowering the Son. There is an interdependence and an interconnection inherent in the very nature of God. Here's the point. If you pride yourself as some kind of long ranger or, or just independent and we don't, don't need anyone else, don't need the church, you're fighting against God's design. Side note here. We live in Tehachapi. I have to understand the culture that I'm talking to. A lot of us have moved up here to get away from people. Which is not necessarily all a bad thing. But we are an independent people, that's for sure. That attitude can overflow into the church. I don't need the church. Or maybe I don't need help. Imaging God means being interconnected and interdependent with a body of believers. If you don't feel interconnected or or interdependent with, with our body, maybe it's time to take the next step of involvement. We'd love for you guys to join a small group and get intimately connected with the small group. Or, or maybe you are and, and you need to serve. Find a place to serve in the church. And you'll find very quickly that, that you'll become interdependent and interconnected. We need each other. We need each other's experience, wisdom, encouragement, accountability, giftings. God has given each one of you a gift. And it's there to build up the church. That's clear in scriptures. We're one body, many parts. Unity and diversity. Which leads to my next point. The third point of application. The Trinity models to us a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that's not discord. In other words, the Trinity models perfect unity in perfect diversity. Unity, again, in essence, purpose, love, mind. Diverse in roles and relationship. Think about this. Without the roles found in the Trinity, the whole Christian faith disintegrates. This is why it's such an important doctrine. Let me give you an example. Have you ever... Ask yourself what you're being saved from. We say that word, I'm saved, or we tell people, are you saved, or ask people, are you saved? You ever ask yourself, what are you being saved from? Think about it. Here's the answer. God's perfect, holy, and just wrath. God is a just God that will punish sin. Therefore, God is both your Savior and God's justice is what 
or whom you are being saved from. How is that possible? Well, we find the answer in the Trinity. Listen to this. In order for us sinners to be saved, one must see God as the one judging our sins, the Father. And at the same time, the one making the payment for our sins, the Divine Son. And at the same time, the one empowering and directing the incarnate human Son, the Holy Spirit. For for the Christian God to be our Savior, He must be a Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Unified in essence, yet all having separate, diverse roles. Father's just judgment, the Son making the payment, and the Spirit's empowering. In this, we see perfect unity and diversity. And we as a church are called to model this unity and diversity to our culture. Unified as a body of Christ, one body, one purpose, one ultimate goal, one mind, and that, that phrase is used so much. We, one way of thinking thinking the same way, one doctrine, yet celebrating the diversity within the body of Christ. You know, I work with high schoolers a lot, obviously. Um, And uh, one of the hard things working with high schoolers is they all leave. And they start getting to the point where you really like them, too. And that's when they take off. Just joking. Um, But... So I work with a lot of kids that leave to Hatchby that are adults now that um, are going to college or the military, and I'm constantly getting phone calls, and, and one of the biggest things that I get asked is, how do you find a, a healthy church? How do you find a healthy church? It's actually Pastor Brent that, that told me this, that has been one of the first things I say when people ask me, how do you find a healthy church? One of the first signs that a church may be unhealthy, a church maybe that you shouldn't be a part of, is that there is no diversity in the church. No diversity of age. It's all one age group. No diversity of jobs or um, economy. or No diversity in giftings or culture or ethnicities. Now, this is just a sign. It doesn't mean a church is unhealthy. But a healthy church body is both unified in worship, doctrine, love, purpose, yet at the same time diverse. And when that happens, it's beautiful. And it makes God look beautiful. We should have a diversity of giftings. We do have a diversity of giftings. Listen to the unity and diversity we find in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts, diversity, but the same Spirit distributing them, unity. There are different kinds of service, diversity, but the same Lord, unity. There are different kinds of working, diversity. But in all of them, and in in everyone, it is the same God at work, unity. When that happens, it's beautiful. And then verse 9 says, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one, 
just as he determines. A unity and diversity in giftings. A body that's both unified and diverse. We should celebrate the diversity in giftings. Well, how do you do that? One, don't be envious of other people's giftings. Joyfully embrace that God has made you a certain ray for a certain purpose. I used to, when I was trying or learning, going to seminary and deciding, hey, I think I have the calling to become a pastor. I used to listen to, to great pastors like John MacArthur, John Piper, Timothy Keller, like all these guys. And, and, and then I got to seminary and I was sitting under these professors that were just brilliant. And I had to come to terms that God has not gifted me like them. I mean, these guys were brilliant. Brent had a professor that knew 28 different languages, right? That's the count, at least. I mean, that's just, in, I mean, that's crazy. And I had to come to, to that term, and you know what? That's okay. God has given all of us giftings for the place that we are, and we're called to use them to the best of our abilities. You know what? If I'm a pastor in Tehachapi for the rest of my life and not in some big city with a big church, I'm okay with that. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you are. Thank you. (laughs) I'll joyfully embrace that. I'll try to be the best I can as a pastor, but all of us need to to be okay with that and embrace that. Not only do we find diversity in giftings, but we should also find diversity, again, in age, backgrounds, culture, races within the body of Christ. There's over 80 verses. Okay, I counted 80, and I stopped counting, um, but... Over 80 verses calling for a unity in worship, yet a diversity in culture, languages, and races. Throughout the whole Bible, Genesis all the way through Revelation, there's phrases like all the nations of the earth, all peoples on earth, all the earth, all the families, all the ends of the earth, all mankind. Let me just give you some examples. Just from the book of Revelations, this is how it all is going to end. This is, this is where the meta-narrative of Scripture as we're going over it ends. Revelations 5.9 says this, And they sang a song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. All unified in the blood of Christ. Revelations 14.6 Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the, the um, eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Revelations 15.4 Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship before you. And my personal favorite, Revelations 7, 9. After this I looked, and there behold me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, unified in worship, diverse in, in tribe, language, people groups. That is exciting. We see the end of the meta narrative as we're going over the, the large story of Scripture. We see the end. 
unity in worship and diversity, again, in tribes, people, languages, and nations. We're called to embrace that today, and yet, sadly, Sunday mornings is said to be the most segregated day of the week in Western culture. And I understand there's some barriers to that. There's some good reasons for that. For us in a town like Tehachapi, there's only so much diversity in Tehachapi. And also, we can't have a worship service with eight different languages going on at once. That, that's understandable. So what can we do to embrace diversity as a church? Well, I think the number one thing is make missions a priority. Make missions a priority. That's taking the gospel to the nations. The the great commission is that the church take the gospel to all people groups, all tribes, all languages, especially unreached people groups because they don't have people in their people group to reach them. So we're called to do that. Because God wants diversity. Side note, this is awesome. To see worship of God transcend all mankind's differences is is amazing. Because there is a lot of differences in cultures. So that's the first. Make missions a priority. But second, try to reach diverse cultures within our small town. There are diverse cultures here. Let's, as a church, try to reach them individually. It's, here's the deal. Human nature, it's, it's, it's human nature to avoid people that are different than us. So we have to purposefully engage different cultures within our, within our church. Third, purposefully, again, this is something that has to purposefully happen. You have to make this happen. It's not going to just happen by default. Make friends within the church that are different than you. Different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicity. Now, this is hard. And the reason it's hard is because we love ourselves so much, we like people that are like us. It's true. It's hard to be around people that are different ages, anywhere in the spectrum, different backgrounds. But we should make that an opportunity to glorify God in our diversity because we're all unified here in the church in worship of God. And we all have something that we can be unified to. So the fourth application. The Trinitarian relationship models to us an inherent expression of authority and submission. Read that again. The Trinitarian relationship models to us an inherent expression of authority and submission. We live in a culture that despises authority at every level. Whether the authority of police, or of government, or of parents, or of the husband's authority in marriage, or of pastoral authority in the churches, our culture has programmed in us to despise authority. Yet, in the Trinity, we see a beautiful picture of authority and submission lived out in perfect joy and love. I want to look at all three persons of the Trinity, see their roles, see how they display authority and submission. This is starting with the Father, who has ultimate authority. 
Jesus is the king of kings, but God the Father is the one with the authority to make him the king of kings. Psalms 2, 7 through 8 says this, You are my son, today I have been gotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father has ultimate supreme authority. So how does the Father model a godly use of authority? Well, I have two ways he does this. First, he is willing to delegate his work to others. He's willing to delegate his work to others. One author said this, one of the most astonishing features of the Father's unique work is his willingness and desire to accomplish his work through others, and particularly his Son. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father. This is praise to, to the Father. Our of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, the Father, has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. This, this verse is saying, praise God, glorify God, the Father, because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He accomplishes his work through his Son. Then gives his Son praise. Which leads to my second point, or the second aspect we can learn from the Father. He, the Father, makes much of those underneath his authority. He makes much of those underneath of his authority. The Father doesn't neglect his own authority or glory, but at every opportunity he praises his Son. He says, look at my Son, look what he's done. Philippians 2, 9 through, uh, through 11 says, Therefore God the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He delegates work to the Son, who is underneath him in authority, then makes much of him when his son accomplishes his task. We're in the middle of a story that that is Saul and David. Saul, with the authority over David, and David accomplishing task, if Saul would have just made much of David and been happy for David, David would have been the most loyal asset for Saul he would have ever have had. But instead, he got jealous of David. But we see no jealousy in God, the Father. And the application should be obvious. If you are in authority, delegate work to those that are under your authority. Then make much of them when they accomplish a task. I am thankful to be under the authority of pastors that do this to me. Pastor Andy and... Pastor Brent, who give me opportunities to come up here and preach and learn and grow and make much of me when I come up and do it. These are men that are modeling the authority of the Father. I can tend to be a perfectionist on things, not everything. Slowly my way becomes the right way, which then becomes the only way. 
<laughs> Not well. I need to learn to give the freedom of those that are under me the opportunity to try. And if they fail, be patient with them. But if they succeed, make much of them. This models the Father. Second, we see the Son's submission, submissiveness. What can we learn from the Son when it comes to authority and submission? Being submissive does not mean being inferior. Our culture says that. It's not true. It is being godlike. You want to be like Christ? Be submissive when you're under someone's authority. Listen to some of these passages. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but seek just or but speak just as the Father has taught me. Or John 6 38, which says, For I am or I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Gethsemane, which is one of the most intense passages in the whole entire Bible. Luke twenty two, forty two says this Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is submissive. And I want you to think about this. Sometimes, I've heard Pastor Andy come up here and preach, uh, that sometimes authority changes. Actually, a lot of the time, authority changes. And, and Pastor Andy would talk about if a, a highway patrol officer was in um, the church, that there are times that that highway patrol officer is, is under the authority of the elders of the church. But as soon as the elders of the church get in the car and start driving down the street, that authority switches. Listen to Jesus. Okay? Jesus has eternal authority over the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus was on the earth, he was submissive to the Spirit. He let the Spirit lead him in his humanity. Jesus, in Jesus' humanity, he was submissive to the Spirit. Therefore, submission doesn't equal inferior. We can learn from the Holy Spirit, too. We can model his willingness to make those in authority over him look good without taking any credit himself. I mean, this is remarkable. So I was studying this. I'm just kind of blown away by this one. The Spirit always seeks to point away from himself to the Son. You want to you honor the Spirit, worship Jesus. And through the Son to the Father. The Spirit takes a background role. And He embraces it. There's no resentment. There's no jealousy. There's no anger. Think about it. The Spirit is the author of Scripture. And what does all Scripture point to? Jesus. The Old Testament, I hope you're seeing, points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points back to what Jesus has done and forward to when he comes back. The Spirit is the one that, that inspired that. Yet we see no complaining. He just does everything he can to make those in authority over him look good. You want to honor the Holy Spirit? Worship Jesus. So what's the application to that? 
There are some giftings and jobs that are just that way. They're behind the scenes in nature. They make others look good. I'm thankful for Carl Brooks, who works at our church. He does so much. And we, we just don't recognize it because it's done well. All the chairs are put perfectly, not realizing that there's people staying up all night doing it. Or Doug Donkles. We see him out there working all the time, and our facilities just look great. Behind the scenes. I worked maintenance in college. I remember one couple days, actually, working hours on painting stairwells. And we were painting the stairwells because they were eyesores. And when we were done painting them all, I was kind of proud. And then I looked at them and realized they looked like we did nothing. And that was the point. To not be eyesores anymore. (laughs) And it was kind of like somewhat fulfilling and somewhat discouraging. But we were called sometimes to do jobs that are just behind the scenes and realize we need to embrace that with joy and be okay with that. When we model authority and submission after the Trinity, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Fifth application. Marriage is meant to image the triune God. Where both members are equal in essence, value, yet diverse in gender and roles. This is designed by God and is a reflection of the Trinity. The attack on marriage is a direct assault against the the glory of God. Because marriage was meant to image God. This includes divorce, cohabitation, the egalitarian movement, which denies that the husband has authority over, over wives, homosexual marriage. Let me just be clear. God intended marriage to be a lifelong, one flesh covenant, unity, between a male and a female diversity where the male has authority and responsibility as, as leader. Anything less is a direct assault on the nature of God. I say this knowing that there are some probably struggling in here, both with divorce and homosexual tendencies. Let's make this a safe place for both of those things where we speak truth, but we, we come with love. That people don't come here hearing truth and don't feel the love. Our first response to any of these should be love. I'm thankful for divorce care that we have here. But if you're struggling with homosexual tendencies, I don't want you to be, be scared. Come talk with one of the pastors. I've had many people come talk to me that struggle with homosexual tendencies. And a few have left not agreeing with me, but I don't think one would say that I didn't care and love them. Same with Pastor Brent. I even have someone that was struggling that now has a beautiful family. Not because of anything I did, but just he, I knew he was struggling. He talked to me about it, and, and, and we see now in the, the long run that God was working on his heart. If you're struggling, come talk to one of the pastors here. Don't feel alone. We all struggle with sin. Let's make this a safe place. A place where we speak truth, but a safe place on both those issues. But here's the truth. Marriage was meant to image God. Your marriage is bigger than you. 
Your marriage is meant to image God. The application for husbands and fathers, model God the Father's example of authority by loving your wife and children as the Father loved the Son. Or we see also Christ's love for the church. Model that as fathers. Application for wife and mothers, embrace the role of submission, knowing that God has shown us that being submissive does not make you inferior. Marriage should model equality or unity in essence and value, but diversity in authority and roles. If you overemphasize either one, you are not imaging God. Some cultures treat women as inferior to men in essence or value. You find this probably more in conservative cultures. Some cultures would say women and men should be equal in authority. Probably find that in more liberal cultures. The balance is found in or the balance is found in what is modeled to us by the Trinity. Equal in essence and value, diverse in roles, relationship and authority. So here are five ways the Trinity should impact our lives. First, God intends his very nature to be expressed or imaged in our human relationships. Two, being made in the triune God's image tells us that we are made for community. Three, The Trinity models to us a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that is not discord. We should find in our church unity and diversity, a unified diversity, which I'm thankful we do have a a pretty good unified diversity here. I love looking out and seeing all the different ages, backgrounds. We definitely can reach some of the ethnicity groups a little bit better maybe in our culture, in our town. Fourth, the Trinity or the Trinitarian relationship models to us an inherent expression of authority and submission, which can be a beautiful thing if done in love. And five, fifth point of application marriage is meant to image the triune God, where both members are equal in essence, value, yet diverse in gender and roles. This is designed by God and is a reflection of the Trinity. Let's celebrate the glory of the triune God, by making our relationships a priority in this church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again, Lord, for revealing personal aspects of who you are to us. Even though our mind can't fully comprehend the mysteries of the Trinity, You have revealed enough that we can apply how you've modeled the Trinity to our lives. Help us where we struggle. Help us to be submissive and or take authority where we need to. Help us to to love our wives, our children, our brothers and sisters in a way that honors you. Help us to be unified in, in what we think, in, 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 in your word, in, in our love for each other, in worshiping you, yet diverse in our giftings. And help us celebrate that diversity by using our giftings to build each other up. 
God, I pray that this is a, a church that just models you, Lord, that images you. I know we're not perfect images, Lord, but help us to be better images as we grow together as a community, as a local body, as a church. God, I thank you for this time, and I pray that, that we are just have a day of worship as we come back for Advent tonight, Lord, that you are glorified, and that we, as we see the roles of you sending your Son, not you or the Spirit, but the Son coming down and living a life we couldn't live and paying the punishment we deserve, then you, the Father raising him, so that we can spend eternity with you. God, I thank you for that, and I pray that that is the motivation for all that we do. Love for you. Amen.